0: Pro-nuclear interests like to tell us how exposure to low-level radiation is no big deal. It's not going to hurt us. And if we just don't worry, keep happy, and shut up about it, we'll all be a-okay. But then you hear a genuine expert tell you about radiation exposure experiments that were done way back in the 1930s, long
1: before we had the atomic bomb, and she says... Radiation exposure research was done on animal populations, fruit flies and rodents, and in Japan on silkworms. And it was very clear that extended exposure to radiation had decimating impacts on future reproduction. So not necessarily the first generation of exposure, but subsequent generations. Yep. We knew
0: all that back in the 1930s, and still we went ahead and did what we did with the bomb and all the rest. So, when you hear about the way radiation from nuclear industry sources can impact not only you, but your entire genetic downline, you start to realize that there is absolutely no way out of that seat that we all share.
1: Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking?
0: We talk with Maya Nadison, author and professor, who rips apart the concept of radiophobia, the propaganda talking point that fear of radiation is more dangerous and does more harm than radiation itself. She tells us not only the background of that term, but how it plays out in the current world to put down and shut up concerned citizens, especially in Japan. We will also have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than most of the world wants to know, except for you, of course, because you're listening. Today is Tuesday, June 11, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. To make room for this week's extended interview, we are going to be skipping the news this week and we'll catch up over the next few weeks. But it wouldn't be Nuclear Hot Seat without... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot
1: seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake.
0: Properly disposing of high-level radioactive nuclear waste, a real headache? Simply reclassify it, low-level nuclear waste, and poof, all those headaches disappear. The government can dump it in shallow pits and just walk away. Crazy, you say? Crazy. Well, that's what the Trump administration is not only contemplating. The Energy Department has already done it. Loud protestation by citizens, politicians, environmentalists, and officials in charge of the Hanford site in Washington State and Savannah Riverside in South Carolina have meant nothing, nothing, compared to governmental glee at making it faster, easier, and $40 billion cheaper to quote-unquote clean up the waste All with the keystroke of a replace function. But no matter what you call it, high level radioactive nuclear waste is still high level radioactive nuclear waste with deadly impact to health, safety, environment, and our forever genetic future. But hey, you gotta save money where you can, don't ya? And that's why Department of Energy and Trump administration's short-sighted idiots behind this decision. You are this week's
1: Nuclear Hot Seat. None that's out of the week.
0: We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment, but first, happy anniversary to us. Yep, that's right. With this episode, Nuclear Hot Seat has completed eight years of weekly programs. The show started on June 14, 2011, only three months after Fukushima began. During this time, We have talked with engineers, researchers, scientists, legislators, filmmakers, ambassadors, one prime minister, doctors, professors, whistleblowers, activists, authors, broadcasters, anyone we could find to help explain what's really going on in the world when it comes to the nuclear industry and nuclear technology, along with what any of us might do to push for transparency, safety, and immediate shutdown. In our archives of now 416 episodes, we have in-the-moment interviews and source material on a wide range of nuclear stories from the past eight years and long before, along with deep dives that explain the issues you care about. In the process, Nuclear Hot Seat has become the longest-running program on the planet that deals exclusively with nuclear issues. Quite a track record. And we have every plan to keep it going, but here's the thing. This show is 100% volunteer funded. That means donations. That means you. Yeah, I know you want to skip over this part of the show. And trust me, I don't like having to ask every week either. But if everyone listening to the show right now donated just five US dollars, we could really take off with a better, more searchable website social media outreach, some needed software, maybe even a webmaster, something the show has never had because it's all me all the time, and trust me, I am not a geek. If you could make that donation $5 a month, that would really help us plan out our year and upgrade the tech on an ongoing basis. So if you value the kind of cutting-edge nuclear information that Nuclear Hot Seat provides and want to help celebrate the start of our ninth year, Send in a one-time donation or a recurring donation of any size by going to nuclearhotseat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. There's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. And that is the lifeblood of this show. Whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you are listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Radiophobia is one of the nuclear industry's favorite disinformation talking points. The fake science theory that fear of radiation does more damage than exposure to radiation. Yeah, right. Well, today's guest helps put that fake news bit of blather to rest with an amazing interconnected web of information. Maya Nadison is a professor at Arizona State University a researcher on a wide range of interconnected topics, including governmentality, biopolitics, and risk cultural studies, autism and bioethics globalization, and political economy, energy politics, and organizational communication. Her books include Fukushima, Dispossession or Denuclearization, and Fukushima and the Privatization of Risk, She recently provided a chapter on Radiophobia and the Politics of Social Contagion for the book Transforming Contagion, Risky Contacts Among Bodies, Disciplines, and Nations. That's what we're focusing on today, radiophobia. We spoke on Thursday, June 6, 2019. Maya Madison, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: First of all, what is your background and what drew you to the subject of radiophobia?
1: My background is very interdisciplinary. I have backgrounds in political science, in communication studies, in philosophy. I've always been kind of a, an intellectual explorer in that I'm interested in a range of subject material outside the normal disciplinary constraints. And I became very interested in human development and environmental health as a result of the diagnosis of my son with autism back in 1998, and studied very extensively the way in which the environment disables biological and psychological and sociological processes and found that environmental health was pretty much marginalized in the very predominant genetic and neuroscience focus of research in autism and autism in that area, and that people's concerns about the relationship between environmental health and autism were often kind of trivialized. So when I came across an essay on radiophobia written by Beyond Nuclear, I was really struck by the similarities and had already at that point been looking at the genomic instabilities that were produced by chronic and transgenerational exposure to radiation, and it's seen connections to autism there. So that's a very complicated and lengthy explanation of how I got to studying radiophobia and the politics of the biological effects of radiation.
0: Part of the politics is embedded in the word itself where did the term radiophobia come from and what was the purpose behind its creation and then its use?
1: Well, I will give credit where credit is due in the sense that Beyond Nuclear offered the first kind of historical analysis of how that term was used and it was used in, in a journal that was targeted f- for gynecology and obstruct I can't say that word. Obstetrics. (laughs) Yes. And what it did is it kind of hystericized women's concerns about atomic fallout by describing those concerns within a psychological framework that was rooted in psychoanalysis that saw women as kind of hysterical and that radiophobia was kind of a symptom of underlying female hysteria. And so kind of it it functioned to erase the real angst in the world at the time about the effects of atomic radiation, which had been documented back in the 30s in the research on fruit flies by Mueller.
0: So we have known since the 1930s that radiation had a physiological effect on living organisms. And yet, in the wake of the global wrath at what the United States had done by dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there seemed to be a need to gain control of the narrative. What were some of the things that were done at the dawn of this atomic age to manipulate our understanding of radiation?
1: There's a really super interesting history, and the history goes back to concerns about the health of populations that kind of grew up around World War I and got played out in the eugenic science of the 1930s, where people were concerned not so much about the health of individuals, but the health of whole populations. And radiation exposure research was done on animal populations, fruit flies and rodents, and in Japan on silkworms. And it was very clear that extended exposure to radiation had decimating impacts on future reproduction. So not necessarily the first generation of exposure, but subsequent generations. And Helen Caldicott has really hammered this point home that exposure effects unfold across generations and that those effects can be cumulative and more burdensome as there become more and more of them. So in the 1950s, this conception of risks to population had to be changed or shifted because otherwise it reinforced the sort of horrificness of dropping the atomic bombs. And Americans and everybody around the world, the public was horrified. If you go back and look at headlines from the 40s, I mean, people really took it very, very seriously, it was, it was catastrophic, this capability of destruction as Godzilla symbolically represented in the uh, Japanese imagination. And I guess it's reopened now, reopening that wound, the lurking fear, I guess the Chernobyl series is doing that as well. The public knows you know, because there's been enough scientific and popular cultural representations of long-term effects as well as direct somatic effects like radiation burns and cancer. So this kind of public resistance to radiation had to be managed, and it was through Atoms for Peace, which didn't just include the energy ideology of endless energy, but also atomic medicine was framed by the IAEA, the International Association of Atomic Energy, as um, being the kind of pro-social component of radiation and nuclear energy. Even though you don't need nuclear energy for atomic medicine, those things are often symbolically kind of bundled together. And that was part of the plan, is to promote the socially beneficial, quote-unquote, aspects of radiation in order to get the public to accept nuclear energy. Then there was also another component, and that was to hystericize and marginalize those who disagreed. And there was plenty of Engineers and people who studied health from a biological perspective. You know, I don't know if they called themselves geneticists back in the 50s, maybe. You know, when you consider that the gene wasn't identified molecularly using laboratory experimentation until the 50s, but these people who were studying the hereditary effects of radiation, they were writing editorials in newspapers like Mueller wrote an editorial in the New York Times in the 50s warning of the menace of radiation and the reproductive effects across generations and the bear report the 1956 biological effects of atomic radiation report documented these effects and even the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation has documented these effects. So there's been this sort of war of competing accounts of radiation safety. And the public's opinion is very much influenced by what the dominant stories are at the time. But we can see with the lasting appeal of Godzilla that people remain concerned about radiation effects.
0: Talking about the manipulation of perspective, you cited the teachings and actually the direct work of Edward Bernays, who was both acknowledged to be the father of public relations and who actually wrote a book called Propaganda, and he was also Sigmund Freud's nephew, so he had access to psychological insights at a time when most people did not. In the late 40s, he did work on atomic issues, guiding the Federation of American Scientists in their efforts to Quote unquote, educate the public on atomic matters, end quote. What did he do and what is Edward Renee's atomic legacy?
1: Well, the full scope of his atomic legacy is still yet to be disclosed. Somebody needs to go through all of his records that have been archived because there are probably lots of unexplored links. But as I note in the paper, What's so interesting about Edward Bernays was that Edward Bernays Atomic Energy Award in 1949, and this award was addressing the problem of cultural lag as Americans were reluctant to adopt nuclear energy, and so their perceptions had to be engineered, and that was the word that Edward Bernays made, he argued that it was the role of opinion leaders to engineer consent. Mm-hmm. So, as, as an example of that, you know, one way to create opinion leaders is to give awards to people. And historian Megan Sethi, who I quote, says that Bernays guided the Federation of American Scientists on how to educate the public on atomic matters, and there were two different models of education that were vying. And one was a more a model of verbatim memorization. The teacher disperses information, and the public is expected to kind of passively get expert opinion and to not question it. That's one model of education. That's the one that that Sethi argues was ultimately adopted. An alternative model is one that is more dialogic, where the public is encouraged to be critical and consume, and that was not the model that Bernays advocated and that was ultimately implemented on Atomic Matters.
0: So in other words, what he was saying and the path that was followed is we, quote unquote, the experts who have given each other awards and have letters of the alphabet after our names are the ones who are telling you what radiation is and there's no way that you as a member of the public can know or believe an alternative narrative unless you are being trivialized feminized or hystericized all terms that are used against women to put them down and take us away from our positions or to take men away from the positions if they share them with us when it comes to life and health and fears of ionizing radiation?
1: Yeah, women historically have been positioned as guardians of reproductive health. And even today, when we're talking about the health and welfare of children that conversation is usually guided by women. And oftentimes, those value orientations are seen as conflicting with efficiency, expediency, cost, and they therefore are trivialized, marginalized. And so it's already existing in the culture. So if you want to disqualify something to make it non-expert seeming, you feminize it, and then you hystericize it, making it appear as if it's an overabundance of concern that is just rooted in kind of female irrationality, pitted against male expert authority. And of course, the nuclear industry and nuclear medicine both have been dominated by Men. And there's lots of research showing that experts tend to overemphasize and have overconfidence in their expertness, not just in their area, but in all areas. And, you know, when you look at radiation health safety, you know, many of the people who developed uh, models of radiation health safety were using assumptions that were developed from the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission report and other kinds of research whose ecological validity, uh, generalizability has been very much subject to question. But because of the complexity of doing the research and you know, the time spans involved to look at transgenerational mutations in human populations, there's not been enough research to really combat those who manage the conversation because they're the ones who are in the Department of Energy and the International Atomic Energy Commission, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. Those are the people who have the agenda to protect and promote nuclear as opposed to explore the reality of what ionizing radiation, the kind that comes off of nuclear materials, actually does to, at minimum, the human body.
1: And it is super complicated to study radiation effects because there are many different kinds of radiation and most experimental conditions expose laboratory animals to a external gamma emitter. So they have some sort of device that emits gamma radiation as a form of exposure and maybe it does it intermittently or maybe it does continuously. So that's one kind of exposure, but the argument that can be made is is that kind of exposure, although certainly gamma radiation can have genetic and reproductive effects depending upon the exposure level, but that kind of external exposure level is not necessarily equivalent to if you eat food or drink water or breathe air that has radioisotopes that are also chemically toxic as well as being radioactive that get internalized into the body and bioaccumulated strontium in bone, even in the brain, uranium and men's testes, cesium in the heart and muscle. Are those equivalent when you have chemical toxicity in addition to the radiation exposure, plus you have an internal exposure, which is geometrically embedded closer to the cells themselves that are being irradiated. Are those things equivalent?
0: You're making some excellent points here. Are you familiar with the work of Mary Olson? She's been with Nuclear Information and Resource Service for years, and she has a new website now called Gender and Radiation. And Mary is the one who, in her work with Dr. Helen Caldicott and so many others, came to the realization that the model for measuring the external dose, which is all that gets measured, is actually a 150-pound Caucasian male. And does not take into account the smaller body mass, the greater size of the genital organs. And Mary was the one who, through analyzing data, came up with the fact that women are on an equivalent dose of radiation to this model that is supposed to be used for everyone, women are one and a half times more likely to be harmed by radiation and come up with cancer that little boys are five times more likely and little girls who are the genetic future of our species are 10 times more likely to be negatively harmed and develop cancer as a result of the same exposure in a male. Yet all that is calculated is the external exposure to the male.
1: Exactly, and that's the second issue. So the first issue is types and duration of exposure. And that is a super complicated, and there are many nuances to that. The second is the individual who is exposed and what their biological vulnerabilities are. And of course, the younger, the individual, the more likelihood of susceptibilities. And then females are more susceptible than males. And so there's all of these increased susceptibilities that are based on factors that are variable, including diet. And I mean, there's so many factors. But the overriding one is that the younger you are, the more susceptible that you are. But it's not just your individual susceptibility, and this is going back to what I really want to stress here, and that is is that the dominant discourse about radiation health effects makes us just think in terms of somatic effects that are like cancer or leukemia. So when people think about radiation exposure, the thing that they think about is that it will cause cancer or leukemia later. But what they don't think about is what the effects might be on their children. And each of us acquires mutations through our just random chance, it happens just randomly, but also through environmental stressors. And the research on exposures in animal populations in real world radiation contaminated zones like work done by Timothy Masseau and Mahler, they have found that those animals have the male sperm count reduces across generations, and the brain size also decreases. And this is in birds and insect populations that they have studied in Chernobyl and Fukushima. And so the effects really aren't just on the immediate exposed. and there is the potential for catastrophic population failure to occur if there are too many susceptibilities that are transmitted across generations as you have more and more mutations, and epigenetic changes, which are changes in the way that the DNA codes proteins, but not actual damage to the DNA. So yeah, that's the third thing. So the second thing is, what is the age and particular vulnerabilities of the person exposed when radiation safety standards are based on adult males at their peak of their health, and then the third is, how are you going to study effects? What is the scope of effects that are going to be studied? I think there's evidence for a connection between exposure to ionizing radiation and autism. Nobody studies that. Why is that, that, that is an area of research that nobody studies?
0: There are so many illnesses where every possible environmental factor is studied in connection with it, but the one that nobody looks at is radiation. And that blind spot seems to be across the board.
1: There are historical reasons why that happened. And what I discovered is is that after World War II, there was a lot of funding for environmental science to study how radioisotopes were tracked in ecologies and across winds and precipitation, so how it gets transmitted across systems. But in general, environmental chemists today don't look at radionuclides because that has been historically the domain of physicists. So they'll look at lead and they'll look at mercury and they'll look at arsenic, but they won't look at uranium, for example. So there are like disciplinary boundaries. And if you're looking for grant money, which anybody who studies anything environmental or does any kind of natural science research or biological research is expected to get funding, there's funding for other kinds of elements that are toxic, not a lot, but some, but there isn't for radiation. So funding, and that mostly is government funding, doesn't support that kind of research. So it's just like a conversation that just only occurs at the very boundaries of disciplines and in very specialized and in some ways kind of ghettoized conversations like health physics
0: or like on nuclear hot seat yes (laughs) i don't know if you've read kate brown's book manual for survival a chernobyl look at the future it's a brilliant book And in one place, she breaks down what she calls the playbook of how the nuclear industry distorts or knocks out of contention any kind of discussion of radiation. She writes, the playbook was rich and varied. Now, she's referring to Chernobyl, but I believe this has implications in all discourse about radiation exposure. And the playbook she cited was classified data, limit questions, stonewall investigations, Block funding for research, sponsor rival studies, relate dangers to quote-unquote natural risks, draw up study protocols designed to find nothing but catastrophic effects, extrapolate and estimate to produce numbers that hide uncertainties and guesswork, privately slander and threaten dissenting scientists, and cast doubt on known facts so that scientists must pursue expensive and duplicative investigations to prove what is clearly evident. How much of that rings true for what you discovered in your research around radiophobia?
1: A hundred percent. And I have Kate Brown's new book. I haven't read it, but I had read her, Plutopia. And I'm really excited to read her latest work. And it seems like it's, she makes a much more forceful argument. I think that everything she says is true and would agree. But I also think that there's more going on than that. And ultimately, I think that there is this idea that humans are invulnerable they are not vulnerable to their environment that characterize the mythology around Western science and technology, that environmental effects are not human biological effects, that that we are somehow invulnerable. And when you look at the basic physics of the way in which radiation health effects were measured, and this has been unpacked by many people before me. I'm not innovative in this regard. The physics of the model of radiation effects is a material model that doesn't look at biological systems. It is a mechanistic model. And so by looking at life mechanistically and atomistically, and not thinking about life as embedded in systems and composed of systems, all of which are interconnected and are exchanging inputs and outputs constantly. The model of life that is dominant within the Western scientific technical paradigm doesn't encourage or enable us to think about vulnerabilities. You know, it's the idea of the seed that just sort of like needs basic inputs of water and nutrients and will just grow to fruition without thinking about how that seed is enabled by everything in the environment. And this bridge of the environment in one place and human as this separate being that is separated by this chasm, that's the problem. I mean, people exploit it for greed and power, but underlying, there is this sort of the sense that we are gods. I've often thought
0: that it is bizarre that people within the nuclear establishment who are making such short-sighted, boneheaded, I have a feature called Numbnuts of the Week, which is just for the dumbest thing that anybody's done in nuclear in that week, and there are always multiples in that, but that the people who are doing these actions that put us all at such risk, for some reason think that they are invulnerable to the impact of their actions, and don't realize that what they are letting loose on the rest of the world, is what they're also letting loose on themselves and their loved ones. But somehow they never seem to make that connection and continue to promote nuclear and bad nuclear decisions based on this short-sightedness or blind spot.
1: Yes, and that role of political interest, you know, there's an established nuclear infrastructure And it benefits energy industries, mining industries, refining industries, and shareholders. And it's connected to the nuclear state. So there's so much inertia in the existing system. And the costs for denuclearization are tremendous, as Fukushima Daiichi and Hanford and other places around the world demonstrate, you know, it, it, there's no cleaning up a nuclear disaster. It's just, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. And so it's easy to just spin a sort of utopian mythology like nuclear is low carbon or carbon free and <laughs> that only nuclear is going to be what allows us to maintain a growing standard of living for the world in an energy future which is characterized otherwise by resource scarcity. You know, there is this kind of climate disaster ideology that makes it easy for people who benefit from the existing system or who just have this kind of hubris or just calculating and greedy, whomever they might be, to perpetuate the system, even though we know that how many nuclear plants are at risk with the erratic climate that's happening in the Midwest right now? I mean, disasters are anticipated to increase with frequency. Sovacool, and I forget who the research partner, um, which are their uh, UK scholars, have projected that there'll be Fukushima-style nuclear disasters every 10 years or so.
0: We cover that here on the show, and right now, the risks in the Midwest are to Cooper Nuclear, which is on the Missouri River, which since May 30th has been five feet over flood level, and we're talking on June 6th, so that is more than a week that it's been above flood level, and they're protecting it with sandbags, of all things. There's also danger to the spent fuel pool at the shuttered Fort Calhoun, which is just a few miles north of there. but. Turning back to radiophobia to get some real concrete examples of how this philosophy, this term is being used against people and against the radiation truth. How has radiophobia as a concept been used in Japan to manipulate and negate discussions of radiation risk from Fukushima Daiichi?
1: That is a very sad story. The story kind of began when a prominent Radiation scientist who was at the time involved in the Fukushima health management survey in response to the disaster stated publicly that there would be no effects from radiation to people who smiled.
0: Shunichi Yamashita.
1: Yes, and that only people who didn't smile. And, you know, he is an expert. And so he was could, actually.
0: Could we put that in quotes, please? Because I refer to so called nuclear experts on this show. They are the ones who get it consistently wrong.
1: Because there's obviously political pressure that was involved because the prospects of evacuating all those people was, you know, just overwhelming. And so the pressure then is to trivialize and kind of rationalize their exposure. So first was to say that your psychological disposition would have a big impact. Now, he did later say to the German news media that interviewed him on this issue that exposure is not likely to occur to people exposed to less than 100 millisieverts a year. But going back to our discussion about the model, well, 100 millisieverts a year for a 27-year-old peak health male might not produce any somatic effects for that individual over the course of their lifespan. But would it have no effects on developing embryo or fetus or a young child. Well, that's the debate that's happening now. Japan has had a huge spike in thyroid cancer rates. I'm sure you must have discussed this. And there's a lot of debate about whether it's a result of screening or whether it's a result of radiation exposure. And the Japanese way of dealing with this issue, the expert authorities who have been making the panel decisions. One was just recently made last week that said that there was no evidence that the children's higher rate of thyroid cancer and nodules was related to their exposure. But they can argue that because they say that if you don't have a measure of the individual's exposure, you can't say that they developed a disease because of that exposure. The badges for measuring exposure were not disseminated until like six months after the disaster.
0: We've spoken often on this show about the intentionality behind, you can't cite data if it doesn't exist. So let's just not collect it, especially at the peak times when it would be most damning and most revealing of the truth of the situation. Three Mile Island, The beginning of the tracking there didn't start until five years after when more than 50% of the people in the area at the time of the nuclear meltdown had moved away. It's been the same thing after Fukushima that without those early numbers, there's no way to tell. And if there's no way to prove it, well, you might be able to show some correlation, but you cannot prove causality. That's the big argument.
1: Yep, that's it. Now, there has been research, as I mentioned earlier, Timothy Masseau and Maulers, Anders Maulers, have played a leadership role, but Mm there have been Japanese scientists involved as well in measuring radiation exposure by looking at gamma radiation levels in particular areas of animals that were collected and then looking at their brain size, looking at sperm count, more recently they've been looking at telomeres, the ends of the chromosomes, and how they're affected. There's research on butterflies as well that conducted by another a group of Japanese scientists have argued and demonstrated empirical effects of reduced sperm counts, smaller head size, etc. But then there are those who argue, well, these, Radiation exclusion zones become animal paradises. But I've talked to Maso about this issue, and he argues is that because they're low concentration of animals, animals are continuously migrating into them so that you have reproductive failure among animals exposed to chronic radiation, but they're replaced by animals who come in. And that makes it even more complicated about making arguments about how an area can become unhealthy when you have continuous in-migration. So animal models are the best way of studying ecological effects, but they themselves get subject to the same kind of controversy and debate, and the nuclear industry and proponents will make counterarguments and will support research that seeks to challenge findings.
0: This paper that you wrote, I told you before we started the interview, is one of the best written, most powerful and compact in 16 pages on a PDF. You nail point after point and make incredible connections very clearly once one sorts through a little bit of the academies that had to creep in. I know that's mandatory in academic circles. What has been the feedback that you have received from academia and possibly elsewhere?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting to be honest, writing about nuclear and radiation health effects in academia is kind of radioactive. You know, it's kind of stigmatizing. So, the people who talk about it are kind of relatively marginal to more dominant academic conversations. But it's interesting. In 2012, I published at Academia.edu a talk that I gave on lessons of Fukushima that looked at media representations of the disaster in Japan and the United States and looked at the kinds of risks that were initially discussed but were subsequently dropped as control over the conversation was executed in uh, April, and how earlier concerns about exposure and ongoing criticalities were kind of disappeared from the conversation as that conversation became increasingly regulated and homogeneous across the press, the mainstream press, of course, alternative conversations going. And then that had the effect of marginalizing as politically more extreme any conversations that are outside of those parameters. So I look at all of that and and talk about that in the Lessons of Fukushima, and that PowerPoint gets viewed every day on Academia EDU. It's one of the most top viewed presentations or content on Academia EDU. People are interested, but it's also volatile and radioactive and stigmatizing for the people who you know, make these conversations. I think that Kate Brown's work got so much recognition because it it ultimately is, you know, addressing the Soviet Union. And right now it's very popular to demonize Russia and the former Soviet Union. But, you know, as Kate Brown would acknowledge, the same playbook applies for Hanford, or for any other nuclear site they're all leaking tritium into the water and the groundwater and the environment they all release lots of radiation when they change out their fuel and that's just averaged across the year in terms of exposure effects even though it occurred all at once i mean there's all these kind of sleight of hands that are occurring to to make people look the other way
0: is there anything else that you would like to add at this time that perhaps we have not covered
1: it seems to me that we're at a critical juncture where human sperm counts in developed nations are collapsing. In China, in Western Europe, in the United States, sperm viability is collapsing. I don't think it's just exposure to ionizing radiation. I mean, there are lots of environmental chemicals and Elements that have been freed from the earth, like mercury and lead, that are really toxic to human development. But we're reaching a point where I think that if we don't start paying attention, we're going to have a future that was very well represented, in my opinion, by the film Children of Men which I think is a good example of what happens when you have societal collapse, as the health of the population collapse, and people are displaced by eco-collapse, and that we really need to kind of get together behind plans that are sustainable. And sustainable plans mean that supply chains are clean. And right now, there are no sustainable energy forms we got to solve the rare earth problem for renewables. But we know where to go, and we know what to do. And if we don't do that, we're not going to make it. And the process has got to be democratic and inclusive. It has to include local decision making. And so we need to press for it. I think it's possible to turn things around, but I don't think we have much time.
0: Maya, there's so much more that I would want to be able to talk with you about any 12-hour block of time that you might have available. But for now, you've given us a great taste of the information that you bring to the table and how you put it together. I will definitely link to your articles and your blog so that people can find your writing. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Professor, researcher, and author, Maya Nadison. The book that contains her radiophobia chapter is called Transforming Contagion, Risky contacts among bodies, disciplines, and nations. It's available through Amazon, or you can have your library request a copy through interlibrary loan. We'll also have links to Maya's other work on the website, nuclearhotseek.com, under this episode, number 416. Activist Shoutout July 16 will mark 40 years to the day in 1979 when a uranium mine's tailing dam on Navajo Nation near Church Rock, New Mexico, broke, releasing 94 million gallons of radioactive waste into the Puerco River, where the contaminated water flowed through nearby communities, into the Little Colorado River, and onto the Colorado River. But it stayed behind and continued to contaminate the land and groundwater, creating devastating health impact on the Diné people who lived there. As part of a global outreach to make anti-nuclear, environmental, and social justice groups aware of this long-ignored nuclear disaster, the organizers of this year's commemoration events are asking for letters of solidarity with Navajo Nation. This kind of outreach was actually started by Navajo Nation when they sent a letter of solidarity to the people of Three Mile Island on the 40th anniversary of that nuclear disaster. Now... They are asking for organizations and individuals who oppose nuclear to send them letters of solidarity. This material can be emailed to Anna Rondon, who is Executive Director, New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute. Her email is nmsjei at gmail.com, which stands for New Mexico Social Justice Equity Institute. N-M-S-J-E-I at gmail. And I will also post a link and the snail mail address on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 416. Please, if you are in a position to do this on behalf of your group or can bring it up to your group in time to get them a letter, they would really appreciate it. Because even though it happened only three months after Three Mile Island's nuclear meltdown, There was virtually no press about it, and there's been no ongoing awareness. This is in the process of being shifted both by Native activists and those of us who support them, and we would like your help in reaching out and convincing them that they are not alone. And Beyond Nuclear International has posted a review I wrote for them of Gregory Yatsko's book, Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. They also post a link to Nuclear Hot Seat number 395 from January 15, 2019, where I interviewed Greg on the book for the show. Of course, the links will be up on the website. Here's today's final thought. Nuclear Hot Seat began eight years ago, starting as an impulse or divine inspiration, take your pick, during a post-Fukushima camping retreat. The first show consisted of a conference call with two people, one of whom I did not know, who responded to a single Facebook notice I put up. On that call, I can hardly think of it as a program, I spoke about what I already knew about nuclear. I thought I was brilliantly well-informed, based on having grown up in the nuked-out 50s and gone depressive in the aftermath of my experience at Three Mile Island during the nuclear meltdown there. But I knew more than most people did at that time, and so I asked them, Do you think anyone else would be interested in listening to a show like this? They assured me that others would. So I decided to keep going until I got tired of it or there was no longer a need. Well, I may get tired, but I'm not tired of the show. From two people calling in, it has grown to thousands of people in 123 countries and counting, and the start of the broadcast network through Pacifica. And it's truly international. Just a few weeks ago, within a day of each other, new subscribers signed up from Romania and Amman, Jordan. The world is listening. There is clearly a need, more pressing than ever, to access and share accurate information about what's happening in the nuclear world. So much money is funneled by the industry into their PR campaigns and the soul dead cubicle hacks who dream up, write, and promulgate their propaganda that I can't stop what I'm doing. There is a need, and people are waking up to the fact that they all need to know now everything they can about the seat that we share, the nuclear hot seat. Now, I often say we in referring to the behind the scenes workers on this show, but in truth, the production, content, And what you hear every week are squarely on my shoulders and nobody else's. I do have advisors and supporters, people who answer my emailed questions, others who regularly send me links and great suggestions of interviewees, activists upon whose shoulders I periodically cry, and a terrific crew of listeners who post the show for me on Facebook. But the grunt work of putting together not only the content, but the website, the tech, the various posts... That would be me. And after eight years, I could really use some help. So I've got some asks. First, an easy one. When I finish the show, I send it to a small group of volunteers who post the show to nuclear sites on Facebook, sometimes to other social media, but basically Facebook. We could use a bunch more people helping out our fabulous coordinator, Tara Johnson-Douglas, It takes maybe 10 minutes once a week on Tuesday or Wednesday, and you'll be joining a great group of people. Just send me an email or a Facebook message, and we'll get you started. How about video-savvy people? I could really appreciate someone to post the show to YouTube every week. There is a Nuclear Hot Seat channel, but my poor old overworked computer can't handle video, so I have neglected it. There's no need for you to do fancy visuals and jump cuts. Just throw up a logo, maybe the keystone picture, put in a searchable title, and we're good to go. If you can help with that, please let me know and thank you. Any social media experts out there, people who have taken the seminar trainings and know the strategies, I could use your help in getting into or onto platforms I don't yet understand, like Spotify, Google Podcast Directory, Instagram, oh, so many others. If that is your area of expertise, please contact me, email, Facebook. We'll set up a time to talk and see what's possible. Of course, support for my upcoming trip to Church Rock on Navajo Nation in New Mexico would be deeply appreciated. And then there's my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It's available on Amazon, and the money that is raised from it goes directly to support the show. As the nuclear industry and its supporters keep making new nightmares and making old nightmares known, we need all the reliable information we can get. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, and that's what Nuclear Hot Seat does. Eight years? I'm just getting started. So do what you can to help us keep going and growing. And we'll meet up again in a year and see how things have gone. But listen to all the shows between now and then, too, because you'll really learn a lot. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 11, 2019. If you want to receive an email every week that links you immediately to the show and gives you a short rundown on what's in it, go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name, your email address. It's done. You'll get the show every week and won't miss a one. Thanks for joining us on this anniversary show. Thanks for having been along for the ride. And for those of you who are just joining us, welcome aboard and fasten your seatbelts because, yeah, sometimes it does get bumpy. But at least you won't be alone. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019. Libby Halevy and Hardest Communications. All rights reserved but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. There you go. That's your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.